Hello there and welcome to episode 18 of Nothing Else Matters, the music podcast that's setting out to try and establish what we think are the 100 greatest records um, ever made. Um, to do that, first of all, we're taking the latest Rolling Stone list of their 100 greatest albums and reviewing those. We've uh, now reviewed uh, 85 uh, with another five tonight and we are 55 uh, of those are voted in at the moment, which is 65%. So we're going to do five more, and obviously to do that, we've got some of our friends um, to help us. Um, so today on the podcast, we have Lisa Semple. Good afternoon, Lisa. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yourself? Very good. Getting used to these Friday afternoon podcasts. Quite like the afternoon ones. <laughs> uh, no, no wine uh, yet. Um, <laughs> we've also managed to... That comes to, after. Yeah, mm-hmm. probably. We've also managed to, um, to welcome back Carlene Binney. Um, hi, Carlene. How are we doing? Hello, everybody. We're, I'm fine. Good. Thanks for coming on again. Um, mm-hmm. I think somebody might suggested to me that you're like the Bear Grylls of gig going or something. That you're just <laughs> there's just no, there's no gig too far, you know. Um, fight through the barrier and stuff. So um, it's great to bring your music knowledge on. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, and on the last podcast, we actually George Patterson's son. Uh, Mike, come on and joined us for a couple of reviews, which was great. Um, and we thought we were trying to sort of keep that theme going. So we've managed to lower the age a bit today. And our final guest is um, Jack Davidson. Jack, good afternoon. Hello, hello. How are we? Very well, thank you. All the way from Sheffield. All the way from Sheffield and another yeah. land. And your <laughs> and your November as well, right? Yeah, I think I'll put that in quotation marks. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how that's going. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay, so got five more to do. Um, so the first one we are going to review uh, is Public Enemy at number 15 on the list with It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. So a very quick summary um, from the Rolling Stone and then we'll pass this to Lisa. Loud, obnoxious, funky, avant-garde, political, uncompromising, hilarious. Public Enemy's brilliant second album is all of these things all at once. The title and rolling force of Bring the Noise is Truth in Advertising. If they're calling my music noise, said Chuck D, if they're saying that I'm really getting out of character being a black person in America, then fine, I'm bringing more noise. To write verses that could match such a sonic assault, Chuck locked himself in his house for 24 hours and emerged with broadsides like the media screed, don't believe the hype. He wasn't sure of the results until DMC of Run DMC blasted it out of his Bronco on a Saturday night. Say shortly, the whole block was grooving to it. Okay, so that's Rolling Stone's summary of It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, which was released on the 28th of June, 1988. Lisa, you're first on today. Take us away. Um, I love this album. Absolutely, always have done. Uh, this For me, this is the best of hip-hop. Um, it's just, I don't an incredible force about it. It's quite interesting actually because the, the album begins with um, a, a slice of the start of a concert in London mm-hmm. and I think I think that was a bit of a tribute to the UK because they actually hadn't been that popular in in the States. Their last album, um, Yo Bum Rush the show, show hadn't really hadn't really gone anywhere and they I think they were quite pissed off about that and uh, but they had actually um, been really well received here so the the the, the record starts with this um and it's the, the air raid siren and it's almost like it's a it's quite ominous it's like a, a warning about how our ear, ears are just about to be assaulted 
basically, I think. And it's, um, it, he, he actually says, um, England, consider yourself warned. Yeah. But, um, so this is the, that's, sorry, this is the first part right down to Armageddon, and, and it's, a, it's the recording of this concert. And you've got Gil Scott, you've already got Gil Scott here in there, you know, the, the revolution will not be televised. Um, it's, lose my foot again, what am I like? So it was count, It was originally called Countdown to Armageddon. That was their, yes. their working title for the record because they wanted that sort of big bang uh, uh, message. And you're right, uh, that's what they've done with the record. And, I, and actually what I read was that when they put it together, they actually flipped the two sides. So that opening that you're talking about um, with Dave Pierce, I think it was, introducing them in London, that was originally planned to be at the start of side two. But they they flipped it on release because they wanted that kind of impact and power to be like a live gig, um, and it worked really well, I think. But I'm, I'm imagine not starting the album with "Bring the Noise." <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know, and following no. up with them, um, don't don't believe the hype. I I just think that it's 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 an incredible album. That the, there's just this incredible um, wall of sound, but it's also you know, the foundations are soul and funk and, you know, there's so many samples and there's so many um, influences, you know, you've got, you've got James Brown. And do you know they were actually quite um, heavily into med metal? Yeah. yeah um, it's a Sabbath and stuff, I think, isn't it? Well, they, they've, um, they, sample, they sample Slayer in it. They've even got a bit of Queen. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's very wide-ranging influences. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I guess at the time for them, they were different, you know, even if you were into hip hop was, was maybe a few years old at this point, but they, they, they landed literally from the street saying this is the kind of sound of where we live. So they the weren't really... The lyrics are quite, the lyrics are quite, confront, they're quite confrontational, yeah. you know, there's like a, a call to action there, you know? Yeah. You know, following the, the the sort of Reagan government, inner cities were struggling, and you know they, they they the lyrics explore the problems and in a way that perhaps rap hadn't done so before. You know that, that you can really feel the rage in them. Mm, absolutely, and they'd also earned their chops because I think they had toured with the Beastie Boys. Mm. Um, a couple of times, who obviously were kind of, they, they were slightly ahead of them and, um, you know, they, they obviously got some kudos off the back of that and then the whole Run DMC thing that was touched on in the quote there. Um, so they're in, they're in good company and I think they're kind of mentor sponsors or people that, that had a lot of respect at the time and probably still do. Um, and then they just, they, they would lastly were a force of nature, weren't they? And would you would you listen to Public oh, Enemy? Is it, is it something you would put on? Yes, yeah. it still is. I mean, that was, it was probably the first hip-hop that I really got into that, along with them, um, well, you've already mentioned, Run DMC and LL Cool J mm. at the time. So, you know, God, it was a long time ago. <laughs> but I feel as if still, it's still really fresh. Um, it's still a, an incredible sound. You know, it's like you've got the booming voice of, of Chuck D. You've got um, the kind of mad ad-lib of... Slave, and you get your DJ in the back with the, the decks. The, the sound is just, you know, it it's so varied, incredible, and there's a real there's a real rage there that you 
that you can't help but feel, you know, and they, mm. they were also pretty pissed off about, um, you know, black radio stations weren't mm. playing their music, you know, Rebel Without a Pause is, is about that and, and you know, imploring other artists, you know, not to put up with this, you know, and that they shouldn't be ignored. I think they felt that people just didn't understand their music. Mm. Um, although I think that has has obviously, you know, they've, they've stood the test of time, so th- yeah. that has changed. Okay, cool. And so, uh, and so sounds like a, a positive from you, Lisa? Definitely, even though yeah. my menopausal brain was kind of going a wee bit... But I, we'll, come said, we'll come well, back in again. It's a bit of a bad morning. <laughs> Um, we'll bring you back in. Don't worry about that. Okay, good stuff. Thanks. Great, great way to kick us off. Um, Caroline, public enemy. Yes, no? What are you thinking? Yes. Yes. Um, okay, yes. cool. Because... I, think you, I think you just need to look at the cover to know what a statement uh... of intent that is. <laughs> staring at it all morning. Even if, even, if the, even if you didn't listen to it, I think just looking at that cover yeah. would give you a flavour of what's, in, what's inside. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was listening to it this week, I read something that said that what they'd intended to do was to make a hip-hop version of what's going on yeah. in terms of including social the social commentary that Lisa mentioned. And I think that's kind of quite interesting in terms of the relative their relative position in um, the list, the Rolling Stone list, because they're sitting at the number one rap album in the list. Yeah, and um, obviously the album that influenced them is sitting somewhere fairly high as well. Uh, correct, it is. Um, we'll get to that. I think, I think so. I think, you know, in terms of looking at the list, you know, you would think that the claim to have done, having done that was actually val- validated. And um, no, I think it's a great record. Yeah, and, and and in the kind of in the pantheon of hip hop records, you know, is the highest one on the list. I think at mm-hmm. the moment, and does that broadly feel as if it's sitting in the right place? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I kind of agree with that because I I think the third album, um, Fear of a Black Planet, uh, that's also on the list. I think it's one hundred and seventy five or something like that. Mm-hmm. But of course, that had um, Fight the Power on it. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is that's a song I knew of them before I knew some of the other stuff. Um, so they definitely didn't. They weren't like a one-hit wonder type type band. That you know the message they had kept going. Probably still is going to a point um, because they played Glastonbury and stuff. Not maybe ten years ago. And I, again, I remember seeing it and thinking, "Bloody hell, it's still a bit dangerous and and what have you." Um, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, uh, Jack, I'm oh, sorry, Lisa. Lisa. Oh, no, no, I was just going to say, Caroline holding the album up there and saying you know just looking at it just mm-hmm. you know gives you a flavor of of what you're about to hear um, and and I'd, I'd, men- I'd hadn't mentioned you know the the, the beginning of um bring the noise mm-hmm. um you've got um the quote from the, the repetition of malcolm x saying mm-hmm. yep. too black too strong too black mm-hmm. too strong and that really uh sets the tone mm-hmm. it does right to hear it does indeed Jack, public enemy, mate. What's your take? I'm a yes. Um, I love I love this album. I think it's brilliant. I think my favorite. I think my favorite part of it is, I, I mean, I, I love the lyrics and their kind of confrontational nature, but the production on it is just unbelievable. Like the the beats sound like they've been made in someone's garage, but yet they still sound very like polished and like exactly like they should be on a on a kind of aggressive like hip-hop record, I just yeah. think it's absolutely brilliant. And I like the, I can definitely see what you mean by the Beastie Boys kind of influence that they mm-hmm. had on it as well. 
especially I mean I think one of the songs on the album the last song maybe it's called you've got you've got to party for your right to fight yeah. isn't it yeah. which, yeah. which is a brilliant, it's a brilliant song it's a really good reference it's um, boys yeah, yeah. and I, I think I think I've seen Public Enemy before I have a okay. vague memory I, I'm sure they supported the Stone Roses Okay, Where, in, Ma- in, Man- in Manchester. Oh no, or maybe in Glasgow. I can't remember. I'm so sure I've seen or we've <laughs> seen Public Enemy before and that event would be great. <laughs> I need to check that one. It's, it's recorded, so we're going to have to go and check that. If I've yeah, seen I don't remember seeing them, which is even more uh-huh. of a worry. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I thought I'd remember that. Um, okay, and I know you're a bit of a hip hop fan, Jack, so I think you gave us some feedback on Kendrick and stuff. So again, does it feel as if it's in the right place? This, um, this album's pretty high up, high hip hop. Yeah. I mean, personally, personally, it wouldn't be the the highest hip hop album for me. But I can see in kind of a broader context why it would why it would be in this place. And I think it was probably quite an exciting time to be a hip hop fan with this, and then low end theory and stuff coming out a year or, a year or two later. I can imagine yeah, it being absolutely. Fun. And what what would the highest hip hop album be then? Oh, it's a good. That's a good question. Um, probably a Kendrick Lamar album for me. Okay. I love Kendrick Lamar. Probably Good Kid, I'd say. It's my favourite. Okay, cool. Thanks for that. Okay, a couple other things then, um, just to wrap up. Uh, very successful for, for a hip-hop rap album. A million copies in its first year. Um, it was the first hip-hop rap album to top the Village Voice Album of the Year awards, if that makes sense. Um, they were always sort of very sort of rock and... Um, sort of folk centric, and uh, and they, they they put this one album of the year, which was a pretty big thing in America at the time, uh, and it kind of set the the tone really for everything else. And it was also the NME's album of the year, mm. um, that year, which again back to that um, Lisa's reference there about how uh, well received in the UK they were. I think you can see that you know they're they're kind of right up there through the the NME um, recognition as well, which was um, which was really nice. Okay. Um, so what did the guys say about it? So they were out of, so we've got comments today from John Wells. John's in, he's a yes. Dixon Telfer's a no. Um, David Ross is a yes. And Skin's a yes. And Martin Metcalf is a yes as well, as is George. Uh, so that's five out of six of them are yeses. I had a little quote, and um, you talk about the, the, the sort of recognition it was given and get this right now yeah when it was um reissued in 95 q hailed it as the greatest rap album of all time a landmark and a classic and enemy said it's the greatest hip-hop album ever at the time stating this wasn't merely a sonic triumph this was also where chuck wrote a fistful of lyrics that promoted him to the position of foremost commentator of the underbelly of the usa so not only did it land when it was was out but it you know Ten years later, it landed again, and it's probably still doing that, which is um, which is fantastic. Cool. Alrighty, where do we start? We start with Lisa. Lisa, this is a yes, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yes, a hell yes. Um, hell. hell yes, Caroline. Boy. Yes, definitely. Okay, yes, thank you, Jack. Yep, so yes for me. Thanks, Paul. Uh, and I'm definitely yes as well. Um, I, my, my love of hip hop and rap has only grown really as we've done this podcast. And um, yeah, I feel a better person for it as well. There mm-hmm. is a there is a, a a documentary that is still on the iPlayer just for anybody who is looking for shout outs and stuff, which I think is called uh, the story of hip hop. 
or something like that that Chuck D is the the sort of main narrator for um four episodes on BBC iPlayer. I think I've watched three of them now. And they're great, and it's that kind of whole cutting through America at the time through um, uh, Reaganism and all that kind of stuff, and um, you forget all that, don't you? So cool. Uh, Twitter, where sixty five percent yes. Um, yeah, very positive about it. So don't really have much to add to that. Um, great album to start us with, and um, happy days they're in, which we're all pleased about. Okay, so we're moving from hip hop back the way. So number fourteen on the list uh, is the Rolling Stones' uh, Exile Main Street, and again, quick summary of the magazine. So a dirty whirl of basement blues and punk boogie. The Rolling Stones' 1972 double LP was, according to Keith Richards, maybe the best thing we ever did. In the existential shuffle of tumbling dice, the exhausted country beauty of torn and frayed, and a whiskey-soaked church of shine a light, you literally hear the stones in exile. The music rattles with corrosive abandon, but also swings with a clear purpose, unconditional survival, and rocks off and all down the line. As Richards explained, the stones don't have a home anymore, hence the exile, but they can still keep it together. Whatever people throw at us, we can still duck, improvise, and overcome. Exile in Main Street is the band at its fighting best, armed with the blues, Playing to win. So that's Rolling Stones summary, Exile and Main Street by the Rolling Stones, um, which was released on the 12th of May 1972, and it's number 14 in the list. Um, Caroline, Rolling I just, Stones. I just think this is a brilliant rock and roll record. Um, it feels like you're at a really wild, decadent party. Um, it does. Which is, which is a good thing, obviously. Um, <laughs> and as, as, as you said, it was, it was made while they were in exile, um, tax exile in the south of France. Um, but the only one that wasn't have, that was there that didn't have any tax problems was Mick Taylor because he'd only joined the band in 1969. So they <laughs> actually made enough money to be in exile, tax exile, but the others very definitely were. Yeah. Um, I think it's thought of as being the fourth and probably their best run of albums after Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed and Sticky Fingers. It's also their first double album. And I read something that Keith Richards was saying that they didn't really have a plan for the album. So they had recorded a lot of material and decided they were just going to use it and put out a double album because mm. by that point in their career, they had the power to say, yeah, we're just going to do this. And nobody's going to tell us not to. Mm. Um, they had reached, you know, reached that that stage. Um, I mean, there's everything there, blues, rock and roll, country, bit of gospel, um, great writing, the horns in particular are fantastic throughout, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's quite funny because the band I saw a couple of weeks ago, the Jim Jones um, All-Stars, yeah. Yeah. are very kind of, I mean, the record, I hadn't listened to the record for a while, but I you know, haven't seen the Jim Jones All-Stars very recently. You can see they, you know, they're pretty much um, doing exile on Main Street, um, you know, for the twenty first, the twenty first century. Yeah. Um, so I suppose the themes: um, sex, hedonism, decadence, shed loads of drugs. Um, yeah. You know, I suppose that represents what the band were kind of um, like at the time. Um, the cover um, montage was done by um, the American Robert Frank, and round about the time of this album, uh, the album, well, I suppose it was the, the tour for for this album. He made a tour movie which is very rarely seen, called Cocksucker Blues. Mm -hmm. The Stones didn't like it because it was kind of cinema verity. So there was a lot of drugs, there was a lot of thing, a lot of misogyny and a lot of things that they didn't really want to be out there after it was filmed. So they took him to court and there was a stipulation that it could only be shown four times a year in a festival setting. And Robert Frank had to be there. Right. Um, 
I've actually seen it. You've seen it, have you? Screened it to the Edinburgh Festival maybe about 20 odd, 20 odd years ago. Um, but now he's dead. I don't know what the stipulation is for right. showing it. Obviously, it's not going to be there, but it gives a real flavour of what they were like at the time and kind of, I suppose, um, embodies the album. And, but no, and, it's a great record. And is it, uh, is it a good film? Is it, you know, uh, challenging or does it not scary. represent them? Is it? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's um, I mean, there's a lot of footage of them. I mean, you know, there's various documentaries of them, but it's very, very stark in terms of groupies and drugs and things. Um, right. I think Jagger in particular felt that, uh, you know, it wasn't really how he wanted to see them represented, and that was where the court court case came from. Well, he, he's not the biggest fan of this period, is he, Jagger? Because no, he no. feels as if he didn't have the control that he, he mm. would normally have. Um, mm. and that, he's quoted that a few times, saying that, yeah. you know, he doesn't mind it, but he thinks he did better records. Yeah, and I mean, I think, I mean, it sounds to me like a Keith Richard record. Yeah, and quite a lot of Mick Taylor in there as well, I think, that mm -hmm, kind of yeah. bluesy, bluesy rock stuff that he mm -hmm. talk about. I think that the kind of overarching influence for me is the fact that um, Graham Parsons mm -hmm. was yeah, in the house for yeah. the thick end of a month. Yeah, yeah. So although he didn't actually record any with him, there's a kind of Graham, Graham Parsons feel all over it, I think, particularly the slower um, country stuff, um, which I think is fantastic. Okay, cool. Um, let's go to Jack. Jack, what's your take on Rolling Stones, mate? I don't really know this. Um, I really enjoyed this album. I hadn't I hadn't listened to it in a long time. Potentially, I don't know if I've ever listened to it the whole way through before I before I went sat down and listened to it for this. Yeah. I think the only the only thing that I would say is that it's potential for me, it's potentially <laughs> four songs too long. Mm. I think there's a I think in that 16 song double album, there's a, or 17 songs, I think there's a perfect 12 song album, which could have, which could have, it could have been cut down to potentially. I'm not as much of a fan as of the slower stuff on the album. I think right. the rockier stuff definitely does it more for me. But out of the rockier stuff, I think it's absolutely, it's brilliant. So when we reviewed London Calling, which was on, I think it was on the last episode, Lisa, wasn't it? Um, which is obviously a double, and John Welsh was effusive on on how great that was. But we challenged John a little bit on did it really need to be a double album with all those tracks on it? And he said, absolutely, because the strength of the album is the diversity of the songs. Um, and without having all those tracks on it, you don't get the diversity. So do, do, do you think that Exile and Main Street, if you'd squeezed it down to being a single album, would it just have been another sort of sticky fingers rather than being something different? No. No, I don't. I don't think. No, I don't think so. Okay. I think it'd have still been a brilliant Rolling Stones album. Okay, and favorite tracks on it? Uh, Rocks off is the best Rocks song off. on that album. It's brilliant. What would Primal first song? First song. It's like the best, mm -hmm. the best intro you could ask for to an album. What would Primal Scream have done without <clears throat> Rocks off and <laughs> a few others to boot? Right. Godless, yeah. Godless Bobby. Okay. Cool. Um, Lisa. Yeah, like like Caroline said, it is just a, a great rock and roll album. Um, I, I, considering the mad hedonistic lifestyle they they led, I, I'm still amazed that they're about and touring and <laughs> doing what they're doing. Um, yeah. he, also got, he got married. He got married as well, right yes. in the middle of all this, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, they went to Saint Tropez and and what have you. So not, they weren't just filling their boots at the villa. They were. They're everywhere, so sorry, Lisa. Yeah. No, no, it's okay. Um, funnily enough, it's 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 a kind of 
it's not an album that I, I, I listen to a lot at all. In fact, I can't remember the last time I listened to it. It was it, it, I. I seem to have a penchant for um, bands in their very early, kind of unpolished stages. Like you know, I quite I really enjoy the the, the earlier Stones stuff, like Aftermath and the Rolling Stones. I, but I think that's maybe back again to you know, what I was brought up with, so that those sounds were always in my head. And I just mm. always loved those old songs. And it's the same with the Beatles. I really love the, the much older Beatles albums, you know. Um, so for me, it's not my favourite, but, um, and it's, it's, it's not something I would really listen to, but I do appreciate that it is a really great rock and roll album. Yeah, I'd agree with all of that. And I think a couple of bits of context to it show they were there for a few months, but I think it was so hedonistic that they actually couldn't get the record finished because um, there wasn't really a kind of complete finisher there. And uh, although Jimmy Miller was a fantastic producer, I think he was also sort of part of the challenge. Um, so I think the reason the sound is so good and so kind of soulful is down to Miller, but I think part of the reason they didn't get the record done as quickly as he wanted to was partly down to him as well. What I didn't realise was that he um, he also plays drums on a couple of tracks uh, on the album, including Tumbling Dice. And I think it's one of the few records that Charlie Watts doesn't play the drums on or play all the drums on. Because uh, again, when they went to finish it, Charlie Watts had but disappeared. So it was, a, it was a kind of, you know, revolving door recording that they were doing and, and Jimmy Miller turned out to be an amazing drummer. So he, he kind of brought all that to the party, but they ended up in LA, I think, didn't they? I think they went back to LA to, to finish it. And, I think Jagger got a hold of it and put some overdubs and stuff on it to to kind of make it sound a, a little bit better in, in his ears for sure. A um, couple other things about it. Um, uh, talking about favourite songs, I think Shine a Light's quoted quite a lot as kind of one of their best songs, which I think was about Brian Jones um, indirectly, which I think you can sort of feel the kind of pathos and stuff in that. And uh, I think Liam Russell is involved in that as well, doing a bit of the recording. Um, and also the other the other thing is um, a couple of really good covers from back in the day and I think they were always a band that I've never been the biggest Stones fan but they've always always paid sort of tribute <laughs> back to the songs that they grew up with and on here there's a couple of brilliant tracks and Shake Your Hips and um, Stop Breaking Down I think which is an old Robert Johnson song so I, I really like the fact that they, they, they never moved away from that and even now I think they're still they're still doing a bit of that as well which is good but your point's a fair one, Jack. It's um, I think it's eighteen tracks all in, sixty-seven minutes long. Um, but double albums can be great, can't they? You know, London Calling, White Album. Um, what else? I think Stevie Wonder's coming up um, soon. Songs the Key of Life, which I think's a double. So they're there, but I think there's maybe not as many great ones as um, as, as singles, which is kind of harder to prove, really. A uh, couple of comments from the guys. What did uh, what did Martin Metcalf say? Martin said, "Oh, Mark, Martin said it's a, it's a no from him." I love much of the Stones' work, but I never understood why this album was revered. I have tried, uh, like Blue by Joni Mitchell, <laughs> but to me, it's mush <laughs> apart from bitch. And I would have ditched the horns and got the guitar to do that riff. The studios were much better in this area and around at the same time. Was Mark's take on it. Uh, however, David F. Ross said the tales of it, the tales of its making are legendary and maybe grow like Pinocchio's nose with the repeated telling. 
But when all said and done, Exile is a brilliant record. Rootsy, ragged and raw. The Stones at their best. It's Keith Richards' record, no doubt. And weirdly, that might be why it's the most complete and cohesive Stones album for me. So there's kind of two opinions, I guess, from the guys. Uh, Josh Patterson's an aside, said that it's in his, his own personal top 10 albums ever, Exile. Um, and he just wanted me to make sure I, I made that point. So <laughs> there you go, George. Cool. Um, I don't think we've missed anything on that. Um, Julie Ray also mentioned in the chat, Julie's hopefully coming on soon. And Julie basically said this is where they should have finished. Yeah, it's an amazing record, but she says the last, what is that, 50 odd years after that? There's not really been anything much to add to that, um, which I guess she'd take a view on. So, cool. Uh, so what do we have? We have uh, uh, for four out of the six virtual panel are yeses. Um, Dixon, David, Skin, and George. Uh, Martin's a no, as you just heard, and so is John Welsh. I think John's a no because we threatened to to call it the best double album ever. <laughs> to a real exception to that, but um, but the four out of the six guys. Um, so where did we start? There we started with Carling. What were we saying, Carling? Yes. You're saying yes. Thank you, uh, Jack. I'm going to say no. No from Jack. Okay, mate. Thank you, uh, Lisa. I'm also going to be controversial and say no. So no, that's fine. Controversial isn't a problem. And I'm going to say yes, this is my favourite Stones record. Um and I say I'm not the biggest fan, but I think I think when they're good, I think they're amazing. Uh so what does that give us? Four, six, um, that's six out of ten. That gives us so that's a carry. So tight, mind you. Um it's just interesting that this that they've done this poll three times and uh the first twice it was done, this record was seventh and seventh on the ratings and it's fourteenth now. So some albums appear to be going up the way as the um as the the polls are recut. I think uh, yeah, Public Enemy is a good example. That went from forty eight to fifteen. Mm. What did refresh um for uh, this record? And I think also Sergeant Pepper's made it. I think that's kind of moved the other way a little bit. So people's views do change, I guess, over time. Sixty seven percent was yes for Twitter as well, um, which was cool. I was just going to call it, I'd never seen that Cocksucker Blues, um, Caroline, but I have saw the Stones in Exile documentary. Yes, I watched that recently as well. It's very good. Which is very good, yeah. Probably a, a slightly sort of tamer version of, but you same time scale and sort of same events and what have you. Um, I really enjoyed it, yeah. If you can I think find that. Cocksucker Blues might be on YouTube, but I don't know what quality it is. Is it? It's probably got Mick Jagger all over it. Sort of score it out and stuff, right? You might get some weird results if you search that on Google. <laughs> <This is> true. <laughs> uh, uh, touché, mate. Touché. Um, yeah, number one, 10 countries. Uh, PS to all of that. Um, they finished it in LA and uh, moving on to our next record. Uh, the person in the next studio was Aretha Franklin uh, recording uh, Amazing Grace or doing the, the engineering and mixing of Amazing Grace which was out in 72 as well, which was our kind of live gospel album thing, which I thought was really nice. And PPS to all was that it was so decadent at the time that somebody walked in the front of the house and stole nine of Keith Richards guitars <laughs> and walked back out the front door again. And they only knew when he went to go recording the next day or whatever that he they had no guitars to play. Um, and they had to go and import a few in. So I think very much of his time, but, um, you definitely get that decadence in the in the recording, which um, there's not many of those, I don't think. 
Cool. Okay, so that's us two down. Uh, the third one is uh, Aretha Franklin, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. Okay, so Rolling Stone said, Aretha Franklin's Atlantic debut is the place where gospel music collided with R&B and rock and roll and became soul. Recording with the best session men at Fame Studios and Muscle Shoals, she promptly cut the album's title hit, a slow fire ballad of ferocious sexuality. The historic moment, of course, was her, store, her storefront church makeover, Otis Redding's Respect, which became Franklin's first number one pop single, prompting Redding to exclaim, quote, I just lost my song. Never Loved a Man began an unparalleled run of classic albums for Franklin. It's the sound of the Queen of Soul claiming her crown. Okay, so that was Rolling Stone, number 13 on the list, uh, Aretha Franklin. It was released on the 10th of March, 1967. And Jack, you're off the taxi rank here, mate. I love this. It's it's amazing. It's about as close to perfect as you can get, I think, for me. Um, originally, when I looked at the list, I was quite surprised to see that it was above Lady Soul, because when I think of Aretha Franklin, that's kind of, that's the first thing that I think of. I always think of Lady Soul. But there's definitely, I think there's definitely an argument to be had there. I think, it, I mean, the, the album is just amazing. She's one of the best singers of all time. I think there's polls that have put her very close to the top of the kind of list of best mm-hmm. singers. It might be a Rolling Stone one, actually, mm-hmm. as well. Um, twice. Twice, okay. Number one twice, that, yep. And I think it kind of represents everything that's good about soul music. It's like relatively, I won't say basic, but relatively straightforward instrumental sections with some absolutely like unbelievable vocals over the top of them. And it's just got some some of those like perfect singles on it, like Respect, as you said, Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You. Uh, the cover, the Sam Cooke cover, uh, Change is Going to Come, is absolutely amazing mm-hmm. as well. And I think what's quite interesting about it is that when she recorded it at the time, they ended up having to move studios because there was like an argument with between her husband and kind of the producer of the studio she was originally recording it in. Yep. And you can imagine that it was quite, it must have been quite stressful for her because she was in the shit a bit at the time. She owed £80,000 to her old record label. So she was a bit under pressure to get a kind of a top selling record so that she could kind of get that rise to fame and then pay off the remaining debt. And I think, I think she done it quite spectacularly. Yeah. Uh, she did totally. So she records a bunch of it down in uh, Muscle Shoals. She then, you're right, there's a fallout and they end up back in New York, um, sort of recutting some of it again. But uh, but they also brought some of the players and stuff back up to, to New York as well to, to make sure it had that kind of consistency. Um, and I think she was in a bit of trouble and her life was fairly troubled. I think she had two kids, didn't she, by the time she was like 15? You know, she never, she, which she didn't really have a clean run at, at stuff, albeit she, her, her, min, her dad was a minister who, you know, opened a lot of doors for her because he was friends with, with some of the greats. Um, but yeah, this was a bit of a make or break, really, because she just joined the label and Jerry Wexler put a lot of his own sort of time and money behind it. But um, it appears to work. And of course, Respect then just bumped it, went to number one, didn't it? And you get a number one billboard, then it, it counts for a lot, I think, particularly in America. Um, yeah, and it's kind of a, it's a bit of like a, it ended up a bit of a civil rights kind of anthem, yeah. Respect, and um, which I think was cool. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it was one of 112 billboard hits that she had 112 um <laughs> wow uh, where are we going we're going to where are we going caroline we'll go to caroline and i think 
Jack put it perfectly there. It's a beautiful record. I mean, how can you not love a record that's got respect on it? One of the best singles and songs and singers that's ever been. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's getting quite difficult to be critical now that we're at the hot top end of this because all these albums are there for a reason. They're there because they're classics, because they're recognised as being, um, you know, the best of their genre, the best, uh, you know, and, and definitely in terms of soul albums, this is one of my one of my favourites. Um, so, so the Rolling Stone magazine mm -hmm. 67, mm -hmm. it has get more difficult to, to pick mm -hmm. at it, but people do, right? Because it's mm -hmm. all about opinions. Mm -hmm. So Rolling Stone in 67 said that the album had a, a distinct lack of versatility. The drums and the guitars were weak and the production lacked polish. Mm -hmm. Was their take on the album. Don't mention the vocal. I think, that, mm -hmm. I think there's a given she's a singer, but talking mm -hmm. as a song, as an album, they were a bit unimpressed by it at the time. Mm -hmm. Did you see any of that at all on the record? Not for, not for me. No. Um, and I think the thing that she brings to it is, I mean, there are great songs, but she's not just singing them, she's inhabiting them. I mean, you feel that she's doing it truthfully and that she believes in it. And I think that it's that sense of kind of authenticity and purpose that informs this record for, for me and makes it classic. I mean, it was interesting you saying that it wasn't, you know, that, that was kind of people... Rolling Stone were quite derogatory about it at the time. But looking back, it was only number 83 in the 2003 list. And now it's at number 13. So, I mean, I think uh, that kind of proves that the appreciation for it is only growing. So my question to that would be, and I, and I love this record, right? So before George comes and gets me, right? Because he's a huge mm -hmm. fan. Um, I do, I think it's a great record. However, the only thing that changed was the fact that she passed away. Mm. in 2018 so yeah, in between the two ratings one was mm. 2012 one was 2020 mm -hmm. she obviously was there and then wasn't there so i just wonder whether you get that emotional response to a record when when someone's not there anymore you know well i think that's true but i think the other thing for me is um the film amazing grace okay i think um you know the time scale of it coming out and yep. uh, seeing that and i suppose that bringing her back into public consciousness in a way and just how, how amazing that absolutely uh, amazing it actually is to watch her in that chapel the baptist church in la it's just you know um you know it means that anytime i hear her work now that's the image that i've got in my head yeah yeah i get that absolutely get that the ps to the rolling stone review was that they obviously re-critiqued it mm -hmm. um 2002 and say that's uh, the the number one record ever recorded by a female mm -hmm. so magazine changes its mind i'm sure um okay cool um lisa aretha well there's i don't feel a lot i can add to, to what jack and caroline have said but for me i mean from the very first note of respect it, this record just oozes class her voice is just so rich powerful and as, as caroline said you know she inhabits these songs, you know, it's it's more than just a voice. I, th mm. I think it's a brilliant record um, and I think it will be a, a record that I will listen to, you know, forever. Yeah, she, she did three albums, so she did this one, she did Aretha Arrives, I think, and then as Jack called out earlier on, she did Lady Soul, um, all in the space of a year. So she went from being this kind of marginal jazz slash um, you know, gospel singer to literally being a force of nature and in, in pop and R and B, which 
I think it's absolutely it's deserved if you look back now. But I guess at the time, you know, if you're in the kind of in the unwashed world, she, she looked as if she came from nowhere, really. Because if you weren't into the kind of stuff that she that she was into, she just exploded and then became this kind of new star and kept it going for a number of years. I talked about the bubble tits and certainly up until kind of Amazing Grace and that time, 72, 73, um, she was still absolutely huge. It did tail a bit after that. I think she lost her way and changed labels again a couple of times. But I guess when you keep going for that long, you're you're going to have some ups and downs. Favourite song on it, Lisa? Got to be respect. Can it not be? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to be predictable. <laughs> okay. Well, well, no, you're not alone. So it was voted the greatest ever song. Um, so Rolling Stones also do a greatest songs thing. And the last time they refreshed that, uh, Respect was number one. There's a lot of greatest ever coming out of this. <laughs> a lot of greatest ever. So just while we're on a roll, actually, I didn't know this, right? We, we haven't done this one before, but I'll give you, a, I'll give you all a, a, a free pass at it. So that was number one on the list. Um, and do you want to go any of the others on the top five? I think you should get at least one. What's going on? It's not actually, no. Mm. No. It actually should be, but it's not, so. There is a light never goes out. <laughs> it might be on my list. Um, so, uh, Caroline, Lisa, do you want to go that before I, I call them out? <laughs> My brain's frozen. You get one. You I get do. one for sure. Okay. Uh, one was um, respect. Uh, two was fight the power. Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> three was uh, change is going to come. Mm -hmm. Sam Cook yeah. version. Uh, four was like a Rolling Stone. Um, Bob Dylan. And five was smells like Teen Spirit. Nirvana. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was interesting. We've got Nirvana to come up soon, which I'm I'm slightly nervous about. Got a bit of a thing about Nirvana, but we'll we'll come on to that at some point. And a couple of PSs to that, and then we'll do a vote on it. I think that one of the things that that is missed out a bit is how good she was on the piano, because uh, she's a singer, isn't she? And she's amazing. Um, but when Jerry Wexler got her in, he basically sat her down at a piano, and says, "Start playing the piano and singing songs, and we'll just." everything will come off the back of that. Um, and that's where all the basis of a lot of those songs are, even Respect and stuff. She plays um, she plays piano on Respect, on the recording. So she's at the, the piano um, chopping away. So so I think it's this classic thing, you know, you, even the greatest people have to be doing what they're best at. They can't, can't just sort of put them into another genre and, and make them great, I think. Um, and she obviously, she did get very comfortable. Uh, 18 Grammys. Um... And I read, didn't know, didn't know this. So in the Grammy world, nineteen sixty-eight was the first year there was a Grammy for best R&B song, stroke vocal, and um, she won it the first eight years in a row. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to go and check when she she didn't win it in seventy-six. I thought I wonder who who beat her, but um, it was Natalie Cole beat her in nineteen seventy-six, um, and she was nominated, of course, but she didn't get it. Um, she was also the first woman to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, of the first two years it was inducted, there was 25 people inducted and 24 of them were males. Hmm. Probably why we've got all these male listeners, Carling, to the, uh, <laughs> to the podcast. Uh, cool. So the guys were saying, um, I've got a quote here from David I'll come back to. So John is a yes, Dixon's a yes, 
um, Skin is a yes, Martin is a yes, and George is a yes. Um, however, David Ross was a no. So you ready for this one? Um, so David said, uh, I've always been a little bit ambivalent about Aretha. She's a great singer, obviously, but, and I acknowledge the choppy waters I'm getting into here, <laughs> that pained vocal gymnastics and a female voice doesn't really do it for me. I've always preferred the more controlled expression of uh, Laura Nairo or Bobby Gentry or Karen Campter or Dusty Springfield, even Dion Warwick. There's nothing on here that comes close to say a little prayer, so it's maybe the songwriting too, but it all reminds me a bit of too much of a Jules Holland Hootenanny special with Ruby Turner. Sacrilege I know, but compare Sam Cooke's change to this one. His is authentic, melancholic, desperate, but hopeful. Aretha's is a little too forced for me. It's a no. Okay, so that was David. Uh, he always gives us a good value. Um, but there's still five out of the six uh, virtual guests are yes. So we started with Jack. Jack, what are you saying, mate? That'll be a yes. Got to be a yes for you. Uh, Carling? That'll be a yes. Lisa? And a yes. A yes. Cool. And I'm a yes for sure. Um, probably prefer this to... Uh, your point on Ladies Hall is a fair one, mate. I think I probably prefer this, but they're both cracking records, so... What is that? I count that nine out of ten then. Carried. Um, PS to it was two PSs. Uh, she does a version of Do Right Woman on the Merv Griffin show from 1967. So it's like kind of real time, um, which is worth watching if you can get it on YouTube. Just her and her, can't remember what her singer, back singers are called. But, um, but yeah, just them doing that is absolutely brilliant. And what was the other one? I don't know if you know this one. So... Um, 1969, there was a woman called Vicky Jones who uh, got arrested for impersonating Aretha Franklin. So she knew her and she played some gigs in Florida and someday one of the clubs says, you look a bit like Aretha Franklin. Why don't you play some gigs as her and we'll give you some money for doing it. So, she, so they did and they, they advertised her as Aretha Franklin touring these four other clubs, but she didn't want to do it, but the guy who ran the clubs was a bit of a mobster and says, well, you do it or, or we won't see you again. Um, and eventually she got arrested and, and it all kind of fell to pieces and so on and so on. But the PS to it all is that um, Vicky Jones ended up having a recording career for two or three years and she got impersonated. <laughs> so, and when she got impersonated she gave up um so she didn't want to do it anymore so for vicky okay cool so that was aretha who is in then that takes us to number 12 which is uh, michael jackson's thriller uh which i'll do a quick summary and i've just saw a picture of the cover for the album which we've got to talk about haven't we mm. talk about the cover right um, Michael Jackson towered over the 80s uh, the way no superstar before or since has dominated an era, not even Elvis or the Beatles, and Thriller is the reason why. He and producer Quincy Jones established a Something for Everyone template of Thriller on 1979's Off the Wall, on which Jackson captures the rare mania of his life, the applause and paranoia, the need for love and the fear of commitment, and a crisp fusion of pop hooks and dance beats. It's hard now to separate Thriller from its commercial stature, Number one for 37 weeks, 33 million copies sold. The nightmarish tabloid celebrity that led to Jackson's death and the horrific revelations about him that have surfaced in recent years. But there was a time when we only knew Jackson as the king of pop. This is it. 
Okay, so that was Rolling Stone, uh, Thriller number 12, released on the 29th of November, 1982. So I will give us a quote from... Yeah, I'll start with a quote from Martin Metcalf um, to kick us off. So Martin says, okay, Michael Jackson Thriller is a no from Martin. Uh, he says, Billy Jean is a masterpiece. Want to be starting something that's very good. Beat it is also very good, but that's it for me. No more. Dixon Telfer um, says something similar, although he ticked it in, but he says that he almost voted it out because of the girl is mine, which he says is excruciating. Um, <laughs> kind of hard to disagree with that. So there's a couple of the, the, the virtual guests have given us some feedback, and David's also got some comments we'll come back to. Okay, but I'll open this one up. Um, anyone want to give us a take on Thriller? Sixth studio album from Jackson, Off the Wall, three years earlier, which we voted in. Uh, it's number 36 on the list, and we, we loved it. We voted in. Who wants to go? I'll go if you want. Go on, then. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not massive on this. Uh, I can't say I'm a big Michael Jackson fan, to be honest. Uh, what you're not, you're know. not a fan, you're not a fan per se, or you're not a fan of this album, or uh, a bit of a combination of both. I'm, I, I've never really, I've just never really got the appeal as much when I like when I've been listening to him. I think I think I broadly agree with what Martin said. There's there's some songs on this album that are fantastic. Uh, Beat it, Billie Jean are both brilliant, and Thriller as well. I think Thriller's a great song. But apart from and that, and the video. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the video is pretty good as well. <laughs> I would be doing that dancing at a nightclub. <laughs> That's the dancing I do. Um, so, yeah, but when you go back and listen to the songs, Jack, I think there was nine nine tracks on this album, and seven of them were top ten singles, which I think was just was and is unheard of, really. Um, for any record, so you know, you're saying there's two or three classics on there, and that's what Martin was saying, but. Obviously, there was, there was a sort of big feeling amongst the public that, that there was more to it than that. Do you not agree? Yeah, I, I would Yeah, I would agree. But I think it's... I don't think you should let the, let the general consensus of the time get in the way of what you might think about it now, if that makes sense. I think they can... I think it can be important, but at the end of the day, you have to separate your own opinion from what other people what everyone else thinks about it in my own opinion is it's not it's not my favorite okay no i would agree with that i think josh patterson says that all our guys on twitter are all idiots if they don't agree with us so you know that you do have to have your own view for sure um but it's hard to get away from the the sheer size of the impact that the record yeah. had and obviously it was the crossover as well wasn't it when mtv became became a thing um so i guess the timing was was right which we we'll maybe come on to lisa I can yeah, see I, think, I can see you doing the, the Billie Jean skip and stuff here with the on the on the, on the tiptoes and all that, right? <laughs> yeah. I I think there's definitely something to do with um, the popularity of it at the time that you, you mentioned MTV. So mm. you video became a, a really big thing. And I, I actually remember the the sort of the fuss and furore at the time about this thriller video that was coming out. And I think that possibly had quite a lot of influence at the time. I mean, I, I'm a, a big fan of the Jackson 5 and I love, I was introduced to them actually probably when I was about 15, quite, 
very quick funny story. So uh, my boyfriend at the time, his big sister, um, was going out with Ord from Slam, you know, the Slam boys. Mm-hmm. And um, although I didn't know the, anything about Slam at this point, because <laughs> it, it wasn't happening yet. But um, I remember going to Loch Lomond in the in the back of their mother's mini, and he was playing the Jackson Five, and I I just never really heard the Jackson Five before, and I was so like, wow, this is incredible, and I thought this is this really cool guy from Glasgow was playing this music, and I really got into the Jackson Five, and I, and then I enjoyed ja- uh, Michael Jackson solo stuff. I, I obviously loved Off the Wall, but there's there's a, a as Jack was saying, that, that there are a few really good songs on this album, but I just feel that there's some listening to it again, and I haven't listened to it for years. I just feel it's it sounded quite dated. Mm. So it, it, it does and, sound and, dated. So is it, that is that the kind of eighties production? Yeah, that, I, I, yeah, the I mean, kind of the the tin drum machine and all that, right? Fire you up about it? Mm. No, it, it's just it, it's it's almost. Just feels kind of predictable. I, I don't know. I, I mean, what was McCartney doing? I mean, that, that's... that's <laughs> suicide. Yeah, we'll, we'll let Maka defend himself, but what he was doing was well, giving... He was I'm giving sure Michael... It, I'm sure it was worth his while at the time, but <laughs> I don't know. It just it, It's just such a kind of naff song isn't it and I, and I and I cannot stand that see the lady in my life it's just so cheesy you know it's just it, just tracks like that that just make me go oh it's just so dated um so much so Maka Maka was also given why it was so popular Maka was giving Jackson advice wasn't it and the part of the advice was you should always own your own publishing rights so of course he then took that advice and bought all of the Beatles publishing rights when um when Apple sold the rights and the the Jackson and McCartney never basically never spoke again after that. So um yeah, which is interesting. And can you see question, I guess we'll we'll bring Carla in a second, but it's one of these albums I think it's very hard to listen to without seeing the videos for most of them. I can't I struggle to just hear the songs. I always put my put the videos into my head. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing or not, but um very much they seem to be kind of just connected it's like a package you know probably because that was quite an, an important element of it at the time that it was you know there was quite a lot of fuss around that um yeah. you know these really um sort of well-produced videos it was it was it was all quite new mm, it was. You know, I, don't, I don't remember seeing anything like that before it was. i mean I, I think there was i mean there was it's all about his, his, you know, his paranoia, and you, you know, I think he felt there were these sort of dark forces out to get him, and and this was yeah. a bit of a precursor to what would come <laughs> later on, you know. Um, I, I think it's inter- it's interesting. This one has went up in the rankings, so this was twenty ranked uh, by Rolling Stone on the first two editions, and it was up to twelve. And I, again, if you'd asked me to guess that, I, I'd have guessed it might have went the other way. I thought like time I'm, might I'm, might not have been particularly sympathetic to him. Yeah. I'm quite surprised by mm. that because I, I do feel that it, it sounds awful dated, and I I would have thought that by now it would it would have been going down the way. But it's not. Do I know um, exactly? So uh, yeah, so Billy Jean, uh, which was the sort of song that, that I guess made it for them. Do you know they did 91 mixes of Billy Jean? And they went with the second mix. 
after doing an or 89 after it show. That sounds like the out shopping for me. <laughs> Go back to the first show. Absolutely. Caroline. I tried on. Caroline, are you going to pull up the album cover here? Are you is it uh, no I'm not. No, you're not, right. Um, okay. And I'm going to agree with Lisa. I think it sounds really dated. Hmm. And I think that's a mixture of the production. And also just because you couldn't get away from this album round about the time it came out. So it's inextricably 80s um, for me in the sound and just the time. Not that it was what I was listening to in 1982, but you just couldn't escape it. Yeah. Um, it I mean, can, I know, you know, can I know. You see it for what it is, Carling. Are there, are there good songs in there? And it just, yeah, there's good, yeah, I mean, there's good songs in there and other people other people have mentioned, mentioned them. But yeah. I think it's very much a record of its time whereas some of the records that we've you know that I've been involved in listening to for this I think are pretty timeless I mean Velvet Underground for example you know mm. I think we've talked about that we've kind of thought it still sounded as strange as it would have sounded when it was released I don't think you could say that the same about this I think there is a point about the videos um, and it was probably the first time that a sort of um, named director had directed a pop video because it was John Landis who made An American Whale Wolf in London that directed the thriller Thing. So that created a lot of um, media hoopla around it at the time that he was, you know, because he was pretty hot at the time. Um, it was well with before Thriller? Was it in that I order? Think so. or? I, think yeah. so. I think so. Yeah. I didn't check, but, but I think think so. I think the other thing that, that does make it quite culturally significant, though, aside from the music on it, was um, MTV weren't really playing black artists very much, as I understand it, around about this time. And um, that ceiling was kind of broken because Thriller was so successful and, the, you know, the videos were such a big part of it. Um, that kind of um, was a bit of a groundbreaker in terms of them starting to um, ex give exposure to black artists in a way that they hadn't done when they initially launched. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. It's, it's a very good point. And I know that, for example, Prince was mm -hmm. very frustrated at the time. So 1999 was pretty much kind of out at the same time and he was getting almost no TV play whatsoever. Um, because he was seen to be dangerous, and uh, Jackson very much kind of opened the door for, um, for for guys like Prince and himself, for that matter, um, to to kind of take it on. Whether that's a good or a bad thing from the kind of MTV side, the sort of power it had eventually, is, I guess, is another discussion. But it certainly created parity, I guess, amongst the, the sort of black artists, which is pretty important. Mm -hmm. I I think when they did the interesting thing was when they did the video, didn't quite realise this. So Thriller was the last single they released from the album. Which I didn't really, if I knew it, I'd forgot it. Um, but part of the reason for that was that they wanted to do this kind of, you know, the film that they ended up doing, this 13 minute thing, but they, um, the record label wouldn't fund it. So they went to MTV and Showtime and said, if you fund the, the video, we'll give you an exclusive on it. And that was one of many reasons that Jackson ended up being the kind of epicenter of, of MTV for a period of time. And it ended up being this 13 minute thing that, because they had a premiere for it, didn't they? They had a like a film premiere uh, that um, Eddie Murphy and Prince and all that went to uh, in, a, in a big theatre. And um, when they played it, it finished and they all gave, gave it a standing ovation and stuff in the theatre. So they were all shouting uh, for an encore. And I don't know who it was, said, well, there's, there's, there is no encore, it's just the... It's just the video from the film. So Eddie Murphy got on the stage and says, just play it again then. So they, they just sat down and watched it all again for another 30 minutes. So I think it was culturally very significant at the time. Um, but yeah, I'm not entirely sure it has aged as well as it could have done. 
Do you think that's why it potentially still holds so much weight with quite a lot of people, like purely because of the kind of dual impact of the music and the the music and the videos and it just being so prominent in so many people's lives that that's why so many people still hold it in such high regard, perhaps? So it's a really good question, Jack. I, I, I certainly, as I say, I struggle to separate the video and the sound, uh, so I'm, I'm sure others are, are sort of doing likewise. But if you think of a lot of the bands and artists that we love from the 80s, they don't really have that sound. You know, I think there was a way to record at that point and make it still sound timeless. I don't know whether you're the Smiths or whoever that may be. There was plenty, even Springsteen to a point was, was still knocking stuff out that was fairly Springsteen-esque. So I think he obviously chose to go down this sort of very commercial recorded sound, um, but you can't knock the success it had, I guess. Um, okay, a couple of things to, to kind of add on to that then. Uh, what have we got here? Yeah, I talked about the Beatles stuff. I didn't realise the guys that play on the record are, do you know the band Toto? You know of them, that kind of 80s American rock band? I, they, I read that, but I didn't know that before. No, I didn't know that either. So they were kind of, turns out they were guns for hire, Caroline. So basically they were studio experts before they became total if, if that makes sense um but he then i think he said i want the best musicians there are and somebody says well you go and get total they're they're the guys and they couldn't be more white if you know they're like the epitome of white aren't they so it's there's not a lot of soul if you want in the record you've also got eddie van halen playing the solo to beat it and I, to be fair as a guitarist he's very good but he recorded the solo for free didn't didn't charge or get paid any money for it um because he was a bit embarrassed about it all and he wasn't entirely sure what was going to happen with it to the point where when it when it came out on record he hadn't told the band van halen that he'd recorded it and it came on the radio and they said well that's you playing the guitar mate and he had to kind of admit it all and stuff and also um vincent price on the thriller mm-hmm. video which I, do you know this bit carly I knew he was on the video, in fact, yeah. he's one of the best things about it. But, um... <laughs> so when he when he was asked to do it, he was offered a share of the revenues from the sale of the record or a 20 grand flat fee payment. <laughs> and guess what he took? <laughs> he took the 20 grand and uh, uh, he was asked on a chat show about it um, somewhere down the line and he went, mm, you know, not one of my better decisions. Uh, because it obviously made so much money. So I think there was a lot of very different and exciting things going on within the record, but I would tend to concur with your, your sort of general feeling that it does sound a little bit um, dated. And for thanks sure. for mentioning Toto. I've now got a really unwelcome earworm. <laughs> is that, what, which one is it? Africa? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, always, always is, isn't it? Back of my head now, and I, don't, I really didn't want that today. Steve, Steve Wright's favourite song. Africa by Toto. That's not going to make you love it well, anymore, there is it? Have it. <laughs> there, there you have it, in, indeed. Um, okay, uh, one eight Grammys. It was it was mega, um, and there was a sort of PS to that was that when he released Off the Wall, he was raging that Off the Wall didn't win the best album Grammy, um, and he said the next time, the next time I do an album, it'll win everything, which rightly or wrongly it did. Um, so I guess fair play him for that. And there's a quote here, uh, this from Time Magazine, 1984. So they said, um, Jackson is the biggest thing since the Beatles. He is the hottest single phenomenon since Elvis Presley. He just may be the most popular black singer ever. Um, 
which I thought was quite interesting as well. So I think, you know, you, you do look back now and go, hmm, not so sure about it, but if you're looking at impact on whether it deserves to be on the on the sort of greatest list, I guess some of that has to be taken on board. Okay. Um, what else did I have? I had a PS. Oh, he got sued, didn't he? You know, he got sued by, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, Saul was Saul Macasa for that one of you starting something thing. So it was a song from '72 uh, that did that. I mean, that thing that he does at the end. But basically, it was a, was a what you call a sample now, I guess. But they just lifted it and recorded it and never said anything. And he got sued and settled for a million quid and a co-credit, I think, somewhere down the line. So, which was interesting. So the guys were uh, John was a yes, Dixon was a yes, with the caveat of the girl is mine. Um, Skin was a yes, loves it. And George was a yes as well. What's that one to four yeses? Uh, David was a no, and Martin was a no that I read out earlier. So it's been interesting this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, who who led this off there? Jack, you led this off, mate, didn't you? Go on then. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say no for this one. Okay, uh, Lisa. I find I'm finding this one really hard actually. Um but do you know what? I, I I'm gonna say no because I think it just does sound so dated. Is it better than off the wall, do you think? I preferred off the wall, but that's just a personal thing. It's okay, that's why you're here. So we voted um, in off we voted in off the wall. Um this one's what twenty places higher or so. So you know if you if you don't think it's better than off the wall, then I suppose that's going to skew your 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 decision about it, right? Yeah, that I, I feel as if I should be putting it in, but you know, in my heart, I'm I'm like, no, it's not going in for me. Okay, Caroline. I think one of the the t- sort of tests for this is, would you want to listen to it again? Right. I mean, I you know I don't really want to listen to it again. I didn't particularly enjoy listening to it in the run up to this, so I think I'm going to have to be brutal and say, personally speaking, while acknowledging all the cultural stuff around it and how the significance of it and how popular it was, I'm going to be a no too. Okay. Um, okay. Well, I, I'm also going to go a no, and I'm quite comfortable with that. I had another proper listen to it again many for many times, but I've listened to it quite a lot in the last week to 10 days. I think there's probably two or three great songs on it. Um, and I actually think the rest are pretty average, if I'm being honest with you, and include Thriller in that. So I think Beat It, uh, Billie Jean, and uh, Want to Be Starting Something, which I think is the best song on it. And, and funny enough, that was recorded in the Off the Wall sessions, and then they carried it into to this album. So... Um, again, arguably, it's part of the off-the-wall stuff, so I'm going to say no to that. And knowing that if I do, four, uh, that gives us four out of ten. So that is a no from the panel. We just voted out Thriller, guys, so... Oh. Great, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, good luck with that. Um, 69% Twitter was yes, so we'll get a hard time off the guys, um, as well as our own panel guests that aren't on today. Um, but that's what we're here for, so um, so it's gone. Sorry about that, Michael. But you have got one on, and you did do the first moonwalk thing, and get your chops for that, right? Okay, kind of everything. Okay, um, the last one we have is from the Beatles, uh, which is Revolver. So let me just grab 
Oh yeah, but that cover. Yeah, he's got. I'm voting no for the cover. Michael Jackson thriller. It's dreadful. That. What did you want to say about that? It's dreadful. It's one of the worst five covers that's ever been ever been made ever. Right. Of course, I'm voting no for it. Terrible cover. What's he thinking? He got the clothes out of wardrobe in the studio. He wasn't. He? Wasn't he his clothes? Right. Right. Uh, cheer me up. Uh, the Beatles revolver. Here we go to finish. Revolver was the sound of the Beatles fully embracing the recording studio as a sonic canvas, free to pursue musical ideas and possibilities that would reshape rock forever. The Beatles' lives were changing too. Lennon had taken LSD at this point, George Harrison was deepening his interest in Eastern mysticism, and McCartney was getting into avant-garde composition. All those influences came through here. Revolver wasn't totally without precedent. The Beatles' previous album, Rubber Soul, had a similar experimental introspect. Harrison once said that Robert Soul and Revolver could be Volume 1 and Volume 2 of the same thing. It made sense that the disappointing live shows that the band played in the summer of 66 would be their last. By the time Revolver came out, they'd already entered another world. Okay, so that's our last one tonight. Uh, the Beatles' Revolver is number 11 on the list and it was released on the 5th of August 1966. So again, I'll open this one out. Uh, to get us started, uh, I'll put a bit of love in here from David. F. Ross. So, David said uh, 100% yes and should arguably be at the top of this whole list. Less than three years between I want to hold your hand and tomorrow never knows, exclamation mark. Unbelievable the sonic innovative progression that was made during that time. They were essentially inventing the modern pop record with Revolver. It's their best album by a distance, in my opinion, which makes it the best album ever made by anyone. There's no weaknesses in it, no dip in quality, even the preponderance to let Ringo sing, one pays off this time. It's simultaneously conventional, it's got two sides with 14 songs all under three minutes, and genuinely groundbreaking. Music has high conceptual and cultural art that takes the ordinary issues of life and renders them timeless and universal. Every pop album made since 1966 has aspired to be Revolver. So that's a pretty good review from David. <laughs> so I uh, just thought we set off with that one because we've given one or two of them a bit of a kicking to kick off. So uh, who's going to come in on the Beatles to, to either back up or challenge David's take on that? Caroline, tell me about Revolver. Um, I don't mm. think there's much that you can add to what David said. I mean, I'm, in, a, a I'm, in, yeah. I'm in a weird position with the Beatles because um, a lot of you I know grew up with them, but I didn't at all. My parents weren't interested in were older and they weren't interested in music. So the only Beatles record that was in our house was the single of I Wanna Hold Your Hand. Right. Which I still and I've still got got that single. Oh have um, you? inherited from them. But um I think um, you know, just to, to um support David's point about just the, the progression between that record, which is pretty basic and cartoonish in a way, and what they're doing here. I mean, it's just um Night and day. Yeah, it's 14 songs. Um, yeah. It's only 35, think, 35 minutes, the whole album. Yeah, I mean, that, that was something I'd noted down as well. It kind of yeah. goes past in a flash when you yeah. think of how many great songs are there. I was amazed to think it was just 35 five minutes when I looked, you know, and I suppose it's the, the opposite in that respect to, you know, what Jack was saying about Angel and Exile on Main Street and that mm. it definitely doesn't outstay its welcome. And there's so much diversity on it. Too much? No, so much. No, do you think too much possibly? No, no, I don't, I don't no, think so. Don't, no, right. I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. And the songwriting in general, you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. The Beatles have a, you know, there's a whole wedge of people that aren't as crazy on the Beatles as mm -hmm. 
as the as the masses are. But um, you know, I think there's a general acceptance that their songwriting was generally very very good. Um, whether you were into the pop side of what they done or whatever. So I think you know there is fourteen songs on here and they're all written pretty well. To pack that into two and a half minute songs is is pretty impressive, I think. Um, and also there's a package thing, isn't there? So the the, the, the whole story at the time was, well, this was released, what, in August 66? Um, and 29th of August 66 was their last gig yeah. in, in San Francisco. So it was all going on, wasn't it? You know, there was just there was things kicking about everywhere that, that, you know, they were saying, look, we're just going to not do things that everyone else does now, um, including playing live, which I think was pretty much what everyone done through the, the 60s on those kind of bills that everyone sort of toured around the world on. So... They were rewriting so many things at the time that it's almost hard to keep up with some of what they're doing. So from um, from Rubber Soul to Revolver to um, Sergeant Peppers was about eighteen months. Um, and you know, arguably the kind of shape of popular music, you know, it, you know, changed over those eighteen months and probably never looked the same again after that. So. So, you know, David's saying it might well be the best album ever, but do you think it, it's an album who it has stood the test of time? Has it got that kind of sound to it? Does it sound dated? I don't think so. No. No, I don't think so either. But, I mean, one of the things that is interesting is that, um, you know, it was third in the poll, I think, in 2003, yeah. and now it's, you know, quite quite far off that. Yeah, it is, yeah, but you know, if and when Mac is not with us anymore, no doubt it will get reassessed again, probably, and nudge its way back up. So they finished touring. Um, I think we chatted one of the last ones about uh, some of the time they spent with Dylan and to a lesser degree with uh, Brian Wilson. And it was like game changing for them because it kind of got them out of their their sort of pop single thought process and moved in into um, writing in the third person and all that kind of stuff. So all this has gone on since Rubber Soul, but. Revolver was the first record where they came in with no songs. So they had ideas and stuff like that, but they didn't bring songs in and record them and put them out. They were kind of working on them as as um, as they were making the album, which again was kind of unusual at the time for, for people. Okay, um, we'll, we'll kind of go around the house on this one to make sure we cover it all off. So um, thanks for that, Carleen, initially. Who, who else wants to have a go, Jack? Um, got to love the Beatles, mate, aren't you? I do, I do love the Beatles. I mean, yeah. I think you can see the the poster behind your head in my room. <laughs> Which it gives that away a wee bit. Um, but yeah, I think this is a, I think it's an absolutely amazing album. I think I, I quite like the comparison, like the the kind of continuity idea of it, like going from Rubber Soul to Revolver. But I think even in that, you can see the, the like really stark differences between the way that the, like the, the sound of the songs on the albums. I mean, for example, Rubber Soul has Drive My Car on it, which is just a jokey, it's just a jokey pop song. But I mean, I do, you do have Yellow Submarine on Revolver, but that's, <laughs> I don't really, I don't really know how you can describe that. It's just right, it's Ringo Starr, I think is the best way to, it's the best way to describe it. But it's just, it's got some, some like beautiful songs on it for no one. I absolutely adore that song. Eleanor Rigby is just amazing. And also, Taxman, you know you've made a good song if the jam want to nick the baseline and just start playing it backwards. So, yeah, I think that's a good, that's a mark of respect. Absolutely, yeah. Of course they denied that, but yeah, um, of course they did. They would yeah. do, wouldn't they? So yeah, they would. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, there is some some fantastic songs on Yellow Submarine, just as a PS that was that they almost ele- electrocuted themselves, didn't they? Because they were trying to do that underwater recording, you know, the backing vocal thing that they do. So they actually had microphones in water wrapped in like a sort of cellophane plastic thing. And one of them short circuited and blew the whole amp and stuff like that. So so they were they were challenging how things were done at the time. Um I just my question was, is there is there too much going on in it, I guess was more my question. Because there is a lot to take I, in, isn't there? Yeah, there is a lot, but I don't I don't think so. I think they kind of even though it's quite like even though it can be quite like up and down in terms of the styles of the of the mm. songs that are on the album, I think it all evens out quite well over the course of the 35 minute period. There's nothing that's properly like in your face and then you're like, oh this is this is too weird. That's too it's too contrasting. I think yeah. it all balances out quite nicely. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I've got a bit of feedback on one of the songs, but I'll bring Lisa in for a take on. I can't remember. You, I think you've been a bit mixed on the Beatles so far, Lisa. Have you? Um, probably. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you were okay with them, but I don't. I think Sergeant Pepper in particular. I think you were, you were flip flopping a bit on. I thought I thought Sergeant Pepper was quite a good album. Did I not? <laughs> maybe, maybe it's just age. So go on then, Revolver. Um, well, like Caroline, I, I've got, I've still got some of my mum's original Beatles signals, six wow. signals, singles. Um, I don't know. Um, sorry, this is completely irrelevant, but it, it, it's it's quite funny that the each one has got Liz written in purple, um, nail varnish. <laughs> That's because when you you know in the sixties when you went to a party. That was to stop people nicking your records. I remember so it. it clearly worked. <laughs> it clearly worked. And was Because I've still got them. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's by the by. Um, this the Revolver is a great album. It's just got such a bunch of brilliant songs. Each one unique in its own way, and just some oh, some of my favourites. I've. Um, got to get you into my life, Eleanor Rigby. She said, "It, it's just I, I don't think there's one that I don't like. You know, there isn't one, and and, and each one is that they are very different. But I, I think that that just makes it such an interesting album for me. You know, I I feel as if it, I could I could listen to it a million times and not be bored. Mm. Whereas there are other albums, I'm I'm a bit kind of like, mm, you know." Yeah, I think I think part I think part of the challenge for that Lisa would be that that when they were recording them, they weren't bored weather. You can you can literally hear the energy. You know, there's a there's a chart. Remember we did the White Album. We said that it was an amazing record, but it was like almost like four solo albums kind of joined together. Um, but this one, they're they're literally all in the studio, doing what they do together and sort of challenging each other to 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 write and release better stuff and. You can feel that coming through. There's just a sort of single ambition to make this iconic record. I mean, Yellow Submarine is a wee bit kind of nursery rhyme, isn't it? Love but, Yellow Submarine. But, but, but they, uh, no, so do I, so do I. But they, they, they always do like to inject just that wee bit of humour, you know? They do, yeah. yeah There's got to be that in there, otherwise it wouldn't really be a Beatles album, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think between that... I can never really decide between that and Abbey Road. That's my probably my favourite Beatles albums. It's um, it's coming. I think I won the won one of the last two. I think for sure. 
Okay, a couple of things uh, on that. So you talk about uh, some of the the songs there. So they did a like a re-release or a remaster. Um, can't remember that was, but if you listen to that, there are some fantastic um, outtakes and versions of some of the songs on the albums, and one in particular, they do two or three versions. I've got to get you into my life. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you could have released any of the other two versions and heard them, but that was all before the horns and stuff all come on. Um, uh, so I, it's just the sort of strength of the song. And I was also reading that part of the reason they done that was that they originally looked at recording the album at Stax. I don't know if you picked up on that. So they actually wanted to go and record it and have that sound through the whole album. Not mm -hmm. not an album of horns, but, but have that kind of soul feel to it. Um, and there was sort of worry about safety and stuff going to recording down there and the size of them at the time, obviously Beatlemania was still mega. They couldn't really guarantee their safety and decided not to do it, which I thought would have been really interesting. Um, also found it amazing that Tomorrow Never Knows was the first song that they recorded. Mm. So it feels like the end, doesn't it? It feels like the, the next phase of something going on, but it was actually the first one that they all had to go at and these tape loop things they were doing and, and what have you, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, and I read a really nice review where somebody says, so I'm paraphrasing it here, but they said that uh, for the sick for music in the sixties, it was a little bit like the Wizard of Oz when it went from black and white to color. You know that bit in the film. She said said there was many great songs before that, including the Beatles. She says, but this 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 was literally like a like a ground zero thing. There was pre revolver and post revolver. There was there was kind of nothing in between. Um, which I thought, you know, the impact it had at the time must have been amazing. But not so amazing that it still wasn't the biggest selling album of the year. Now, we had, it, we had this question before. Do you remember what the biggest selling album of 1966 was? And the clue is that it was the same one in 1965. Hmm. <laughs> Lisa. Uh, it was the sound of music. I know, and it also, uh, you know, the Rubber Soul wasn't the biggest in '65 either, because the sound of music was also the biggest. And so, you can't, you can't beat class, can you? Oh, Julie, uh, McCartney's got a little quote here that says, uh, "What did you say here about the album? Uh, we'll lose some fans uh, with this new album, but we'll also gain some." The fans we probably lose will be the ones who like the things about us that we never liked anyway. June 66. So I think, you know, the Fab Four, Mop Top, whatever you want to call that, I think, you know, the, the, the songs we were writing were amazing songs, but I think they were all itching to, to go away and become adults and do their own thing. And this is certainly the, the bit where, where that all happened. Um, their their so fans have grown with them, though. I think they have, but they didn't, they, they didn't all come with them, did they? They never do. So um, I think he was just accepting that. And certainly the bit about giving up the live performances was, was part of that, wasn't it? Because obviously, you know, a lot of the guys were about the live gigs and the Beatlemania and stuff like that. Which, um, on that point, uh, although there's obviously not the footage you would like for this sort of period with the Beatles, but there is actually um, two concerts on YouTube of the final tour. And it's actually quite interesting. So uh, one of them is concert footage from the last gig, which is terrible. No, I don't mean the gig's terrible, but the footage is terrible and sounds terrible. And But it just, it, it all looks a bit ramshackled and stuff, you know, and they look as if they can't wait to get off. And 
but the first gig of the tour is in Munich. Um, I think it was uh, six weeks between them, uh, and that was in Munich. And it's the same set they play, but they're having a great time. It's like, you know, they're, they're kind of back playing live again, and it's kind of quite a small venue, and sounds half decent, and they're having a ball. And then six weeks later, they've, they've said that will do us, because this whole, you know, bigger than Jesus thing happened, and all that kind of stuff. So, fascinating time for everyone. Uh, quotes from the guys, I gave you David's, uh, John was a yes, justice is, sorry, I hasn't explained that yet, but it was a qualified yes. Uh, Dixon was a no. I need to go and check Dixon's note, I'll check that in a second. Graham Skin was a yes. David was a yes, just mentioned him. Martin was a yes as well. Um, so we're five out of six with the guys. So I'll go around and I'll see if I can find Dixon's note on that. So who's going first? Caroline. It's a yes from me. It's a yes from you. Thank you. Uh, Jack. Yeah, resounding yes. Resounding yes. That's a new category. Thank you. Uh, Lisa. A yes from me. A yes from me, and it's a yes from me as well. That's a great album, fantastic. Thirty-five minutes. I think it's the it's the only Twitter poll I think we've done so far that got a hundred percent yes to the vote. Um, I think it's the only one. So, which I guess is kind of quite interesting in itself. Uh, I've got someone else to tell you, and I can't find it. If I can't find it, I can't find it. So uh, Dixon said. Uh, oh, Dixon said no, that's what it was. Although the cover art is their best and the string arrangement on Eleanor Rigby is tremendous. So it was a qualified no from, from Dixon. But the PS to the cover art, so I do agree with him after going from Michael Jackson's cover, which obviously I loved, to um, to this one, which I think is quite iconic. So the guy who did it, um, Klaus Verman, uh He's also got another, he's got many claims to fame, but he's got another claim to fame on a famous song, if you know that, from 71 maybe, 72, because he was a bass player. So he plays the bass, the bass intro on Yusuf Vain, oh. Carly Simon, Shun. And if you ever, I only know this because I read it, but if you ever, if you've got cans on and you listen to it, when that bit at the start plays, you hear Carly Simon say, son of a gun, she whispers it into the, microphone because she'd never heard them play it before and then they just keep playing it and they sing the song and stuff like that so it was so iconic to her that she was sort of tipping her hat to him during the recording for it um which i think was nice nothing we got any carly simon in the list it's a bit of a shame okay cool well that's an absolute slam dunk for the last one that gives us um nine out of ten on the last one and i'll go and have a word with dixon see if we can persuade him that we come back on board cool so that's us so i think um what we end up we end up with four yeses there. So the only um no which will create some chat will be um thriller from Michael Jackson. So thanks for that guys, that was brilliant. Um cool. So have we anything we've missed on the chat today? Anything he's brought in that we haven't talked about? No? Cool. Okay. Well we've got a couple of things to do to finish. Uh one is that we give every guest the opportunity to nominate an album for us to consider to add to the list. Uh, so we've got two guests today. So um, Jack, you get first dibs, mate. So tell us what your album nomination is and why. So I'm going to nominate The Holy Bible by Manic Street Preachers. Um, okay. Manic Street Preachers are my favourite band. Um, and that is my favourite album from my favourite band. I think it's harrowing 
the album. If I mean, even if you look at the cover, you can kind of you can kind of tell what you're going to get when you listen to it. I don't know if you've ever seen the cover, but it's a very mm-hmm. fat man, and he's it just looks like he's in shambles, effectively. And you, I think the the only if you're listening to the album for the first time, it's not the kind of thing that you can just sit back and just chill out and, and stick it on. The only way the only way that I could find to listen to it properly was sitting down like with the lyrics open in front of me, reading the lyrics and listening to the music at the same time, because you, I don't think you can appreciate the album without properly reading through the lyrics and and, and figuring out what like what they're actually talking about. I think the best analogy I could find for that I could think of for the album was like it's like chewing on rubber. It's like you have to properly like make an effort if you want to if you want to get any, anything out of it. And it's not something you do regularly. And it's not something that I would do regularly, listen to the album. So Okay. Is that was that the last album with Richie? Uh, yes, it was. So that was the last full album that they recorded with Richie right. Edwards. But then subsequent albums like Everything Must Go, they still had bits of his songwriting yep. left over, which they used to for the lyrics on some of their songs and everything must go. Okay, so we'll stick that on the list and make sure we all get robbers to um, to chew on <laughs> when we're reviewing it. Thanks for that, Jack. It was great, mate. Caroline, I think you're the first time we've had a guest on twice, I think. Well, uh, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Hopefully we'll get you on again at some point. But of course, we may as well give you another go then. You've already had an album nomination, but um feels feels remiss of not to give you the chance to nominate another one. So. Right. That's very kind of you. Well, this time I'll put it in one that I talked about the last time, which is White Light, White Heat, which happens to be my favourite Velvet Underground album. And as you can see from the wall, I'm quite keen on the Velvet Underground. You are. So remind me why then? Why this one? I think just, I mean, John Cale period, uh, Velvet Underground is my favourite. Um, I think he brings an edge that they didn't have thereafter with, with the Yules after he left the band. I think... Um, it's probably possibly the most challenging album. It's certainly the most avant-garde al- album, and it's worth the price of admission for seventeen minutes of Sister Ray. Glorious <laughs> sonic chaos. <laughs> yeah, sure it is. It's like a whole Jesus and Mary chain album, isn't it? Mm-hmm. One, it's probably one longer than some of them. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Okay, thank you. And uh, yeah, we're, we're all big fans, aren't we? The Velvets, and it's interesting that that is the one that's probably the most challenging, I'd guess, out of the the original records that they released so um but that's your nomination and we'll, we'll add that one onto the list so we'll see how the guys got on with reviewing two of yours caroline <laughs> if we get you on again we might give you another one who, who knows well that would be nice i'll need to think of one <laughs> <laughs> cool all righty thanks very much for that thanks for that jack as well um okay so for the next uh podcast i can't believe i'm saying this we're actually in the top 10 mm-hmm. at least i never thought we'd get here so, um, for the next five, never thought I'd get here. <laughs> What's that? Sorry, certainly never thought I'd get here. <laughs> no, me, no, me too. So, the next five on the list are Lauren Hill, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, uh, Bob Dylan, Blood on the Tracks, Prince, Purple Rain, Fleetwood Mac, Rumors, and Nirvana, Nevermind. So, as Carling said earlier, we are at the top end here, so it's getting a bit harder to to sort of pick away at these but to be fair we've just voted thriller off the list so 
you know, when we put our mind to it, we can we can achieve great things. So, um, so we'll look forward to that, uh, and obviously we'll get you guys to give us some votes and stuff um, for future episodes as well. So, Lisa, as ever, thank you, Caroline and Jack. Um, thanks for being guests today. Really appreciate that. And uh, until the next time, guys, um, enjoy yourself, stay safe, and we'll all catch up soon. Take care now. Thank you. A good weekend. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye.